Welcome to the Daily Energy Markets, uh, Sunday, July 2nd, uh, a little bit later in the day, only appropriate given the season that we're in. Uh, we're looking at month in review. And let's kick off this morning with Mike Muller, head of Vital in Asia. Mike, since we last had the chance to talk, we've had two major developments, you would think, in the energy markets. OPEC Plus made the commitment to further cuts, including the Saudi unilateral cut, which takes effect this month of 1 million barrels a day. Uh, and also we had that major geopolitical event in Russia over the month of June. And yet neither of these things seems to have shaken the barnacle off the rock of $75 Brent. How do you read this market given those major events and yet the oil price remains ultimately static before, where it was before these big events happened? Thank you, Sean. Um, I would say the uh, the outcome of the OPEC plus meeting whereby Saudi Arabia took a unilateral move to take extra production off the market in the months of July um, came at a time where the experts in the market were expecting a phase during the calendar year where there was going to be a, a tightening of the supply demand balance anyway and as such um, there was going to be a, a tailwind uh, for those that wish to see prices supported uh, for that extra volume to be taken off the market therefore just uh, added to the tailwind um, but of course the reason it was done was the the general overtones of uh, of a softer economic global picture um, fueled not least by concerns around Chinese demand or or rather, disappointing lack thereof. And uh, as such, I think there's your explanation for why the markets have generally held at more or less the levels that we were at before the OPEC plus meeting, mid 70s. Yes, there was an excursion down to the low 70s, but uh, on the whole, what we have here is a relative period of flat price stability on, on Brent crude oil and uh, OPEC basket prices. Um, there's a lot more that can be said about uh, global movements of other goods. And uh, if you look at certain leading indicators that the oil market tends to take a cue from, uh, the petrochemical sector, for example, still doesn't look particularly healthy. The Chinese construction sector is, is not underpinning certain markets that are energy intensive. And if you look at shipping markets, those are not giving you particularly bullish uh, vibes at the moment also. So as such, I think uh, we have a sense of balance uh, rather than the predicted tightening of a market, um, which which may yet occur later this year. There is some speculation now, of course, what happens as uh, OPEC move into their Vienna conference uh, latter part of this coming week, 5th and 6th of, uh, of July. But that's obviously a, um, a larger forum where multiple um, third parties are invited to attend and exchange opinion. Um, so I expect that to be more of a um, more of a seminar rather than an actual um, event which uh, which could lead to further surprising news. Yeah, they might give us some signals of commentary on the sidelines, but no policy change expected there. Christoph Ruhl, Senior Research Scholar at the Center of Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Christoph, also over the course of the month of June, we had the, 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 the rate hike scenario come back into focus with most of the central banks, at least the G7 central bankers, indicating that they're not done yet and that uh, uh, inflation has been quite resilient and so expect further rate hikes. And most dramatically, the Bank of England gave us a 50 basis points during June. Your thoughts on that side of the equation, the demand side, the macroeconomic outlook for the G7 economies and their pull on the oil markets? I mean, you, 
you know that I'm not one of those who look at interest rates to determine oil prices or not only at interest rates. So what Mike just said was interesting. Maybe it's time for a role reversal a little bit. Because as you know, I've been consistently on the bearish side and all these forecasts, you know, $200 oil, $300 oil. It's not long ago that people seriously, the Goldman Sachs, the RBS, the energy aspects of this world would engage in that. And now we are here, you know, major events like that don't really move the dial. I think the mistake of many analysts who were too bullish was it's very simple. It is they treated the oil market as an appendix to somebody else's macro forecast. And somebody else's macro forecast turned out to be too bullish um, or, or too, you know, wrong at any rate, and, and therefore the oil price didn't behave as forecast. What really played a role and what was underestimated is on the demand side that a period of high prices destructs demand, destroys demand, and therefore carries the seeds of price pressure on prices on it. And probably more important on the supply side, where we had a few months ago this very razor-thin safety margins, uh, very little inventories, very little spare capacity. And where now, after the US you know, resumes even this SPR filling, uh, after a period of oil prices under pressure, and especially after the OPEC plus announcements and cuts, you know, we have a, a, a much bigger safety margins. And that, together with some other things, explains the lack, lack of reaction, the lack of a price spikes to events even as potentially big as, uh, as a coup in Russia, as a revolt in Russia. So these two things have not gone away. But I do think that the economy is probably in better shape than indicated. I do think that the interest rate cycle, whether it's now one more increase in the US or maybe two maximum, is approaching its peak, its apex. Everybody knows it, everybody looks at that. So despite all the screaming now, even with one or two more rate hikes in this year, the economy has an underlying strength, which is has been persisted for a while now. I would go as far as to say, even if we technically go into a recession, like now in Germany, technically in a recession, I don't think you get a plumber or something. Huh? It's complete full employment and everything. A technical term to recession just means two, take two quarters of negative growth. Even if you get that in the US, it is not comparable to some boom times with much lower employment and output levels we had in the past. So given those, given those kind of counter intuitive developments. I mean, this is the challenge that the central bankers have, isn't it? They've got full employment. Their interest rate hikes are not really moving the dial. Inflation is softening, but core inflation is very, very sticky. They may have to go more than what we currently perceive. They may have to, but they probably will not. I mean, inflation is always, you know, is is going to not go down to 2%. I think it is just a matter of time until we all will get used to a world in which inflation is somewhere between two plus two, maybe two plus one and a half or something like that. Given the extraordinary debt levels, given the extraordinary amounts of government spending, given the limited options to tax, given commitments and the use of the electorate you know, to these large government bailouts, whatever the problem, if it's a pandemic or a war or a recession, I think that we will live with higher uh, monetized uh, deficits. And that means that we will learn to live with slightly higher inflation. And uh, central banks, of course, they have to at some point declare victory. But I don't think that they really will push deliberately the economy into a recession as they would have to, if they would have to go to six, seven, eight percent and positive real interest rates on top of that. Mike, I want to just come back to this idea of where this market is, supply and demand. I mean, we've, for much of the sort of recent months, we've kind of been in a demand weakness narrative. 
but, but it strikes me that we're now in a supply excess narrative rather than demand weakness. We're, you know, demand is still at 100 million barrel a day plus oil market, but yet supply seems to be uh, greater than predicted. And I, so I come back to the comment you made at the recent MPGC event in in, in uh, Dubai. And if I paraphrase you correctly, you said that the second half of the year would see 2 million barrels a day more demand than where we were currently at. And that was, I think, about a month or so ago. Is, is that still your perception perspective? How do you see that balance going into the second half, this year of two halves? Does that narrative still survive? Yes, perhaps I need to clarify. Um, there's a general consensus which has been echoed in, in conferences since MPGC also that uh, supply is a little bit higher than most had anticipated, whether you look at uh, provinces like Guyana bringing on streams, whether they're looking at US output. Um, and then on the demand side, it's just disappointed a little, as I alluded to before, not just with China, but the general softer global economic uh, outlook for energy intensive industries. Um, at the same time, of course, uh, there's been a penetration of uh, cheaper fuels into the space traditionally occupied by, by oil, namely coal, certainly in Asia, um, which is also the LNG story I've talked about many times over. Um, so then to the seasonal aspect, I think most uh, research shops and most uh, research departments in, in Wall Street banks and large uh, energy majors uh, have a consensus around the fact that the year-on-year -year demand versus 2022 is up in the order of 2 million barrels a day, some are a little shy of that. And of course, there are a couple of definition issues around whether you put gas, liquids and condensates into the mix or not, which, of course, are not in the OPEC plus total, for example. Um, within that range, and that consensus is pretty good since we're halfway through the year already, there is an expectation that there will be an acceleration in demand of jet fuel, which is still the major cut of the barrel where demand is missing. Largely, if you can oversimplify it down to the fact that we still don't have much international travel in and out of China and various other um, countries that haven't really come back to full travel uh, since COVID, but primarily China. Overlay on top of that, the fact that there is a seasonal recovery in demand driven out of uh, the West in summer and then Asia in Q3, Q4. Um, you have this seasonal uptick in demand, which always characterizes the oil demand shape of the curve between Q2 and the second half of the year. So that's normally less than 2 million barrels a day, but it's compounded by the expectation that we will see more jet fuel demand. And even though we still don't see too many Chinese tourists around places like uh, Southeast Asia, um, that expectation is there if you look at the forward, uh, forward schedules of airlines, et cetera, and put all that into the mix, there is still a view that yes, there will be an acceleration in demand, uh, whether it's the order of magnitude I highlighted MPGC, probably, probably not quite, um, but that is still very much the underlying uh, scenario. Of course- On that, uh, yeah. I just wanted to jump in, Mike, on, on that and, and ask you your thoughts. If Saudi Arabia was not to continue with its one million barrel a day cut beyond July, would the market react bearishly to that? Would that be um, would that be you know difficult for prices and holding in the range they are at the moment? <laughs> uh, that's a relatively easy one to answer, really, Sean, because it's always down to gauging what the market's expecting. Where is the consensus ahead of any next decision point? Um, so, that is the biggest next decision point, isn't it, on on supply? OPEC, as we said, our meeting this week in Vienna, but that's a that's a, a seminar, as you said. Saudi is in its own corridor now on this one million barrel a day cut, mm -hmm. uh, which is only for a month, and then they can decide, as they've said, what they will do. Uh, but in essence, they've kind of got themselves into a corridor here to step away from it would be seen as quite bearish, I would have thought. 
No, I think I think the market would agree that when uh, when the large producer says they're going to do something, they typically follow through. Of course, July was very prompt and upon us in trading terms. It had already elapsed and traded. Uh, so in that sense, people are now going to be looking for confirmation. And they may not necessarily see it in the shape of reduced exports from the kingdom. They may well see it in terms of stock draws um, and in terms of the very large downstream system that Saudi Aramco uh, has control over. And if you, you have to put various components together to, to assemble that, that total uh, cut. So yes, I've heard speculation that they may con contemplate extending it into, into yet another month. I think there is a consensus in the market. Uh, had they announced a multi-month cut up front, that might have had a even stronger impact on markets than the one month did. Um, but the fact that the market still seems to be trading in a reasonable balance, if you look at Brent, for example, the front spread, the backwardation between first and second month on ice is barely positive. It went to almost zero. That's not telling you that we have a particularly strong market at the very front end, despite these volumes being taken off the market. So I guess we need to see a little more time elapse for us to see what the effect of this million barrel day cut is and how it cascades through from essentially Asian priced sour barrels into the into the actual um, benchmark uh, crudes, namely, namely Brent and Dubai. But um, I think it is fair to also point to the OSPs, uh, not just the Saudi OSPs, but all the other uh, GCC uh, and core OPEC GC, uh, OSPs to see that there is an intent there to price their, uh, their baseload oil for many refiners at a, at a more premium level to, um, to, to, to trigger an abstinence from those, uh, from those grades and uh, to have those refiners that would have nominated Saudi and Iraqi and Kuwaiti and Qatari and Emirati oil to go after alternatives. Uh, and those swing alternatives tend to be the spot barrels from the Atlantic Basin. So it's a little early still to see how all that plays out, but it should end up seeing a realignment of trade flows and a generally tighter picture, absolutely. Well, I, I would suspect that his, his Royal Highness, the, the oil minister of Saudi Arabia, will be asked that question a few times in Vienna next week. Uh, and it'll be interesting if he takes that same posture, either it's too early will be his answer or will he actually answer it? Uh, Christophe, I wanted to take the opportunity uh, uh, to talk a little bit about Russia. I, I know none of us really are in the geopolitical expert box, uh, but you have worked a long time in Russia. You know it well. How do you read the tea leaves on this event that happened recently, this the so-called uprising that never continued? Um, is this a big deal? It certainly seems that on the headlines, it's a big deal, and yet it's passed like it was nothing. Your just thoughts on reflection, and does it have a legacy resonance for the energy markets? I think uh, it will have a, a legacy, and it was a legacy slightly different from most, what most people think. It's not as simple as that this was uh, some insert, some conspiracy, and then out walks a very weakened Putin. It's not as simple as that. I think, first of all, number one, this was genuinely pretty much the story we all read about now. Prigozhin sort of losing it, hoping for more support than he actually got, putting his troops in march. Putin, apparently, when you look at the TV picture, slightly panicked, uh, prepared to crash it. Lukashenko and others may be stepping in, negotiating this kind of exit deal. And Prigozhin has been very calm since then. Now, when does a mutiny fail and when does a failed mutiny profiteers the incumbent? You know, this happens when the two things in place in, in the case of Russia. One is if the incumbent certainly served Erdogan very well a few years ago uh, when his failed the, mutiny. 
Yeah, exactly. And what is the requirement for that to work? Number one, the incumbent needs to capture the narrative to control the story. So in Russia, that means Putin and, and others in his group, we shouldn't always fix on him as a person, uh, need to control the story saying, we prevented bloodshed, cool heads prevailed, that's why the guy got away temporarily and so on. Number two, they need to crush the mutiny and with the severest ways possible. And I think Mr. Prigozhin has just painted a huge white crosshairs on his shoulder, on his back. And I think that- If he's Christmas, I'd be surprised. I think he will be, yeah, we should expect him to be killed. It's not clear when. Uh, and and some other measures to be taken to degrade him because it is essential, as I said, to make clear the consequences for everyone. But this particular event, also because it is pretty unique in history, you know, bloodshed has been avoided the last minute. Normally, they always step to the brink and then one more. But um, in this case, they step back from the brink. I think that might, in the short term, uh, actually strengthen the current regime in the sense that it takes uh, Putin a little bit, puts him under pressure internally, but there's nobody immediately willing to step up on it. And if the war sort of, if, if there's no breakdown, then in the short term, the public will also step back a little bit from fighting each other too much. And they will say, okay, the most important is that we remain cool under pressure and prevent the empire from breaking up. In the longer term, if, the, yep. if you as me believe that the Ukrainians will probably be capable of uh, making them in the longer term, let me just say it depends on what happens on the battlefield. If you believe yeah. the Ukrainians will make a breakthrough, uh, Russia will come under such pressure that, that we should expect regime change one form or another. Just to follow up on that, Christoph, another big event uh, this month or in the month of June in, in your home country of Germany was the declaration of a new security policy, essentially Germany re-engaging the world in a with a front foot forward on security posture, your thoughts on that and, and what it may mean for Europe? Germany engaging the world in a front foot forward posture. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, I, they, I they made a very I significant think... policy change uh, during the last few weeks regarding its, its engagement. Well, it, wasn't, it wasn't the last few weeks, it was announced uh, after the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, it's basically implementing what happens there. I think given the state of the German society, this will be a gradual shift uh, to slow for many, certainly to slow from a Ukrainian perspective and, and, and a hawkish country's perspective. And uh, still, I think that a majority of people here in their, in, the core, in, their, in their hearts hope that it will not be necessary, but their heads tell them that uh, the world has become so unpredictable that they will, uh, you know, have to spend more than 2% on the army. But it's not a really big shift. It is more that the people in power, the both the Greens and the Social Democrats were the ones who for a long time thought you could rely on Russia on this energy partnership and this uh, gradual change through trade. And now they have to be a bit more on the hawkish side to compensate for this very obvious error, which, which they made. Mike, looking again on the supply side of the story, uh, you mentioned Guyana and some of these others, but I wanted just to get your thoughts on the outlook. We had a story on our digest today, of the Americans meeting the Venezuelans in Qatar of all places. Uh, we've got Iran uh, would appear in talks with the US again, and also uh, moving uh, as much oil as they possibly can, I think at this stage, and, and the Russian oil 
continuing to get to market, that these very big players in the oil markets, they're not marginal characters like Guyana, obviously Russia, Iran, and the potential for Venezuela to, to return. Your thoughts of where they are coming into this more than expected supply piece at the moment and going forward? Yes, Sean, you've touched on some on some pretty big uh, pieces on the chessboard there, if you like. But you can always read things two ways. There was a set of statements last week about a lot of the floating inventory of Iranian oil sanctioned everywhere bar China, right? Um, having, uh, having been depleted, having been taken to market. So some will say, oh my goodness, that's really, really going to weigh down on the markets. That's bearish. Others will say, well, it's gone now. So therefore it's no longer there as spare supply capacity. So that's just one example of how you read things two ways. I don't know what to make of the diplomatic engagement that allegedly took place in Qatar three weeks ago between the Venezuelans and the Americans, but um, I don't think we should overestimate the capacity of Venezuela to, to flood the market with oil. There's been uh, decades of lack of investment there, um, which is going to require some serious investment before Venezuela can return to its former glory in terms of production capacity. In other areas, we still don't have, at least unless I've missed something, we don't have restoration of flows from northern Iraq, from the Kurdish region through Turkey, despite the fact that the Turkish election has been a settled affair. Um, I may have missed that. I've had a couple of, a couple of days of leave here. Um, you had a headline in your digest about concerns over disruption of exports to Sudan. Typically in flashpoints where there are civil war type events, uh, oil continues to flow because whoever controls it wants the revenue. So I'm not sure we, we should attach too much importance to that. Uh, you probably have some sort of negative impact from the disruptions in France today. And it's that time of year where you get typhoons in Asia and you get hurricanes in the West. And uh, for the very first time, the benchmark of the world, Brent, has a hurricane uh, exposure um, because the uh, the vast majority of the barrels that can come in to set the BFOETMM for Midland benchmark uh, could be affected by delays in the US Gulf in what appears to be a season which is not just uh, characterized by the return of El Nino, but extremely high surface temperatures, water surface temperatures, all the way across the Gulf Stream to, to west of the UK. And this is already generating cyclonic activity in June, which most people know is a little early for hurricane season. So one has to price in a certain amount of, of premium or what I like to refer to as speculative froth into the, into the outlook for the size of the export programs from the US should there be any hits on the export infrastructure in Corpus Christi and further across in Houston. Let's Sean, Sean can I add something please. on this uh, yes, supply please, demand? Please. Yeah. Because I think it's actually a very simple principle at work here. And the world has overestimated demand and is slowly sort of coming down to that. And demand figures really downgraded over the course of the year. And demand, of course, is a function of global economic growth, simple. But supply is a little bit different because supply can be adjusted much faster than demand, which moves very slowly. And we shouldn't pretend that the oil market is an entirely free market where supply only depends on what is produced and what kind of random weather shock we get. And, so. and this is where the, where the, in quotation marks, beauty of the Saudi cuts comes in. If they maintain they are now, again, they have the lever. They can, in this picture where supply turns out to be sli slightly bigger than expected, as analysts agree, uh, they have a way, a very simple way of regulating supply, knowing what, what demand is going to be and knowing that demand cannot react very fast to that. And so the answer to your implicit question, what happens uh, next month? And so if they really want higher prices, here's a chance to get it very easily. And that's what will happen. 
Let's get the survey question and then ask Christoph and Mike about their outlook for the next two months, because of course we will be taking our summer break and we won't have them back till early September. So the question uh, we're going to post on social media today, and we'll start with uh, the gathering here, Brent crude oil stuck around 75 due to one supply excess, two weak demand. Uh, and ultimately it's both you would have to say, but what's the dominant narrative do you think going uh, at the moment and through the summer supply excess or weak demand? Uh, so Mike, of course it is uh, July. It's, uh, you know, typically going into the holiday season where the markets are distracted, traders go away and, 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 and volumes decline. Your thoughts on, on, on the next two months, the summer period, uh, and will you know we come out of it with this market having a much more definitive direction? So I welcome your sort of outlook for the summer period. Yes, well, uh, Christoph has, but I haven't mentioned Russia yet. So I think we yes, if you're, keep one, keep one eye on, on, on that. But Russia has continued yeah. to, um, to come in with its exports of both refined products and crude oil at the higher end of expectations. Many people had assumed that there would be uh, lower exports and that continues to run at, at pretty big levels. So much so, of course, that people are saying, are they actually producing more than their end of the bargain under OPEC plus? Um, but that, that, that is that really... essentially all going to Asia? Um, well, of course, on, on the crude side, uh, we have the Indian market, which is your prime base load market taking pretty much as much as they technically can. And then, of course, the Pacific flows are all ending up in, in the Chinese market. Uh, so that's on the crude side. On the product side, much more interestingly, yes, you have a much larger export program of products from the the Baltic and uh, from the Black Sea. And those flows are largely having to find their way through the Suez Canal. Although it must be said, uh, many countries in the global south have uh, moderated their view towards uh, refining, uh, towards taking Russian refined product also. So you are seeing um, more material volumes staying in the Western Hemisphere going to places that uh, they hadn't done so before. Um, so the amount of inquiry from new countries contemplating taking Russian oil is fine, but I must emphasize taking Russian products at below price cap, um, because of course it is still awfully complicated to find for, for most of these countries to find the banking channels, the ship insurance, and of course the shipping and the banking to um, to take oil. Which is why ultimately, isn't it, that $75 is a good price because it makes that uncomplicated, does it? It gets that Ural spread it's a viable thing for legal movement of Russian products and crude. Um, I'll answer that one diplomatically. I think, yeah. uh, I, I, I think yes, the market will always find ways of balancing and the price will adjust to the levels it has to adjust to in order to do what the world needs, um, which even the G7 leadership agree to and will publicly say, which is the Russian oil is needed by the world markets. And therefore the mechanisms have to work in a way that achieves their objectives of minimizing revenues whilst at the same time serving the purpose of keeping the market adequately supplied. Yeah. Just to finish off, Mike, on your outlook for the next two months, a natural period of lower volumes are traded. Uh, how could that impact the market? Um, just to clarify, Sean, what did you mean by lower volumes traded? You mean Well, the paper other... market tends to, uh, to drop off a bit over the holiday season. I wouldn't read too much into that. I mean, uh, yes, we have had a much lower open interest, which I think I highlighted in one of these calls previously. So that still remains the case. There was a general lack of interest from the speculative components in the market, but also managed money 
um, in in fossil fuels in oil in general. And uh, yes, open interest is not what it what it once was. But by the same token, if you make the assumption that managed money and large funds uh, wish to have a component of energy in their mix, then you can make the same argument I made before in the case of Iranian floating inventories that at some point these this interest might return. Um, now, many say that's not the case because oil served as an inflation hedge. If people take the view that inflation has reached a point where you no, know, it's maxed out, then you don't want an inflation hedge anymore. Um, but people don't just put petroleum, energy, gas in their portfolio as an inflation hedge. Um, so it's going to be interesting to watch uh, whether money, managed money stays on the sidelines now that we've entered the start of a new quarter. Christoph, last word for you, your thoughts and outlook for the uh, summer period. I mean, just uh, generally speaking, I think uh, broadly flat with a light uptick. Uh, I want to flag two things. One is there is an enormous risk remaining from the war side that something goes wrong in Russia uh, or that uh, decisive changes in the battlefield lead to political consequences. And as said this many times before, I would say it again, I would not put it behind uh, the Rush, current Russian government to generate an oil price crisis if that helps them uh, in other aspects. So that's one big risk. I would, I agree with Mike, I would not read anything into a paper trade going here or there because we know that they don't determine the direction of trouble. They, they like us, try to figure out where the train is going. And, well, and the then physical jump traders also go on holidays. No, but I mean, oil will still be needed in the holidays more than yeah. before, at least in the transport sector. And, uh, you know, money staying at the sidelines, the only thing it does is less useful arbitration and therefore generate probably a bit of more potential for volatility, but in a strange night. But I do think that uh, as the Saudi cuts bite, as the uh, U.S. inventories continue to decline in the midst of driving seasons and SPR reversal and as the financial trading takes place there, and in, and in London generally, we will see an upward drift uh, over the summer, maybe not very dramatic, but uh, for now it seems this constant declines may have reached their bottom. And, uh, and then in the fall, we'll, we'll have to reassess. Well, I think certainly in the coming week, we were going to see some noise uh, coming out of Vienna. Uh, I'll be there myself, uh, and hopefully I'm hoping you guys will be there. You're saying that um, makes for some noise? <laughs> no, 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 not at all, but uh, nonetheless, I will echo any noise I hear and share it on the podcast. But um, no doubt, I, they will I, continue I, I, the cuts. This is pretty safe, I think, to assume. Yeah, it's. Uh, but I also I think, think over the summer, and over the summer, you also tend to find that um, news uh, tends to have bigger vibrations, but the market reacts more, sort of extremely See, to what. That's because there's less of this, less of these very useful so-called speculators who arbitrate, you know, stocks away in normal times. It's true. And of course, we also have some more Fed moves expected in July. Uh, so that might have its own, uh, you know, where that resonates on the on the macro numbers. But Christoph Rule, thank you so much. Have a wonderful summer. Uh, hopefully our paths might cross before September. But if not, uh, uh, take care and enjoy. And Mike Muller, of course, um, thank you as always, Mike. And look forward to seeing you both in Fujera in October. Please Mark your calendars, uh, uh, and uh, but before then, we will be in touch. Thanks, guys. All the best.